we're in the book of Colossians, of course, if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. We considered uh, last week the prayer and the blessing of Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, the nature of the player, prayer, the, the blessings that were sought, uh, the source of those blessings as God in Christ. And then we began to look at the uh, main body of the letter in chapter 3. Now, just to remind you, the purpose of this first chapter, uh, considered as a whole, is to point to the preeminence, to the dignity, and the centrality of Christ in the true faith. In opposition to certain heresies which were being circulated amongst or around the Colossians, heresies which relegated Christ to a secondary place, as if Christ was good enough for beginning in religion, it was good to go to Christ in the beginnings of religion and to have to do with Him, but to get the fullness of the of 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 the of the faith, to get uh, the the wisdom, the gnosis, as the word is in the Greek, that you found not in Jesus Christ, but you found that in ascetic observances, you found that in the worship of angels, you found that in uh, the keeping of certain of the ceremonies of the law. And in response to this, the apostle is in this chapter going to, st- he starts out by showing, before dealing with any of those specific issues that these uh, heretics were raising, he starts out simply by asserting and demonstrating the preeminence of Christ and how all the fullness is in him and how he is the wisdom of God. And in verses 3 through 8, of this first chapter, he lays the groundwork for this discussion, somewhat surprisingly, in his section of thanksgiving, by calling, by first of all, mentioning and uh, and affirming over and over again the centrality of Christ in a backhand sort of a way, uh, which we'll... uh, recall in a moment, and then also, and perhaps principally by recalling them to the gospel as it was preached among them at the beginning by Epaphras. And so, you remember, he he, he brings attention to those things as we read and we'll read again this week. So he lays that groundwork by calling them back to to the remembrance of the gospel as it was preached among them and by affirming the truth of that original gospel which they heard. Now, in uh, verse 3, or actually verses 3 through 8, you will remember, we said constitute a single sentence, and this is the apostolic thanksgiving. We give thanks to God. We being, of course, Paul and Timothy, as is clear from verse 1. And you will remember that we talked about this word, give thanks, eucharisteo, or eucharistine, a term which we saw in the Bible was clearly used for an act of religious worship directed towards God, for thanksgiving is an act of worship. And then uh, we had the first of five descriptive elements that came upon the heels of that uh, of that uh, main 
clause, main verb in the sentence, and that was describing this thanksgiving, telling us to whom they were giving thanks. We give thanks to God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, he first tells us uh, to whom they give thanks, to God, and particularly in his capacity as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will recall uh, that that uh, was important, uh, and, and will be important as we go along, that it's not merely God, but it's God as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in fact, God through Jesus Christ as their Father. And then, uh, we were just about to begin looking at then the, uh, the next uh, clause here. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And then he goes on, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and the love which you have to all the saints, for the hope, or on account of the hope, which is laid up for you in heaven. And so we'll begin today uh, with the words, praying always for you, or, or always praying concerning you. Now, when I first uh, gave you the outline of these verses uh, several weeks ago, uh, at that time, just from my, from my uh, first examination of it, I believed that these words described how it was, the manner, in other words, in which they were giving thanks. We give thanks to God by praying or in praying always for you. And, and uh, in fact, according just to, on a superficial examination, it looks like that that is very much what it means, and it's technically grammatically possible. But uh, as I delve deeper into this this week, I have determined not to interpret it that way. I believe that, in fact, it's saying something slightly different, and uh, I'll explain, also with a comparison of some of the other New Testament texts, uh, just to give you the explanation at the beginning, we've already demonstrated, we've already seen that Eucharisteo, the giving of thanks, describes an act of the worship of God, a particular aspect or act of worship, worshiping God, the addressing of God with thanksgiving. Now, this is included in what we would call prayer, isn't it? We, if someone goes, we don't say they go to give thanks to God, we say, well, we, we pray to God, and in praying to God, we give thanks. So we use the word prayer, the English word prayer, in a very general sense. Uh, but Paul does not, and he especially does not use it in a, in a general sense in these beginning parts of uh, the epistles, in these sections of thanksgiving. Rather, he uses it in a very specific sense, and it describes something different from thanksgiving. And what it in fact describes is what we would call petition, or as the Apostle himself defines it in one place, making request uh, of God. So you see, there's a clear distinction between giving thanks to God and making request of God, making petition of God. And the pattern of these sections of the epistles works something like this. He will say uh, that 
he is giving thanks to God for them, and then he'll lay out several reasons why he's giving thanks. What are the grounds of his thanksgiving? And then he'll say that he's praying for them, that he's making request, and then he will list several items of petition in their behalf. So we have a very clear distinction uh, in the, uh, f- these two things, one from another. And I want to take you now to several New Testament passages to just demonstrate this for you. The first one is in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 8 and 9 and 10. Romans 1, 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So here we have him saying he thanks God and why it is that he thanks God. Then he goes on, for God is, next sentence, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. So he explains that in these petitions that he makes unto God, which is separate from his thanksgiving, he's praying that he might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Now this is a, a shorter example, but they'll, they'll get fuller as we go along. So we clearly see the distinction of thanksgiving and petition. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Interestingly, in this letter we have thanksgiving only. He says, verse 4, I thank my God always on your behalf. Why? For the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's thanking God for the gifts which God has poured out upon the Corinthians as a church. And perhaps interestingly, instead of, uh, instead, of, instead of a petitionary section then following directed to God, I sub- we have a petition directed to the, uh, to the Corinthians, which perhaps may be an important thing. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he, he goes on. Then, uh, in... 2 Corinthians, now this is, not ex- ex- this is not in a beginning section, but it does clearly demonstrate the difference between petition and thanksgiving. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 and then 12 through and 13, we have thanksgiving. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that she always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Uh, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causes through us thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. So he explains, uh, I know this is uh, uh, introducing a strange context, this is about the the gifts that were being uh, uh, given uh, by, the, uh, by the Corinthian church and the other churches. And so he's explaining that their, their gifts and... Uh, were causing many to be to, to give thanks to God and to, to, to praise God and give thanks to Him. Now he goes on, 
Whilst by the experiment of this ministration they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men, here it is, and by their prayer for you, which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be to, unto God for his unspeakable gifts. So again, he clearly distinguishes between the thanksgiving that was being given to God and why, and the petition that was being made towards God and for what. More clearly, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, we have thanksgiving. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you. All right, then we have the prayer. Making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. And he goes on and on for several verses. So we have thanksgiving, which was given unto God on account of their faith in the Lord Jesus and love to all the saints. And then we have prayer that was made and these petitions that were requested of God. Same thing in the uh, Philippians, chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And then the prayer, verses 4 and 9 and 11. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. For what? Verse 9, and this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, and so on. Again, the clear distinction. He gives thanks because of their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. He makes petition and request of God for these various other things. We have the same pattern uh, then also in... Uh, the first and second letters to the Thessalonians, briefly, 1 Thessalonians 1, uh, verse 2, we give thanks to God always. Uh, why? Verses 3 and 4, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, and so forth. Now, it says here also, making mention of you in our prayers. Well, where does he say what he was praying for? Well, if you will skip over to chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, he says, going back to the prayer that he was making for them, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. And, and then he says, now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you, to the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. So there's our a substance of his prayer. And then finally, Second Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 3, we are bound to thank God because that your faith grows exceedingly and the charity of every one of you all toward each other abounds. And then, skipping down to verse 11 and 12, Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good, all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. The name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him. So forth. So, uh, that is just a survey 
brief survey of the places in the beginnings of the epistles in which we have a clear distinction that is made between the thanksgiving that is offered to God and the petition that is made of God for various things. And I have a whole host of other verses that I wrote down, which if you're interested in, I don't want to go through them all, I'll give them to you afterwards, which again demonstrate the use of this particular word as being petition. Um, and the really the bottom line of it is, is this, that there are only a couple of exceptions, possible exceptions, to Paul's use of, of the word prayer to refer uh, to specifically to petition and request and not to every address of God in general. And I didn't have time to check it out too deeply, but it's quite possible that those exceptions that are there are actually different uh, Greek words that are simply translated prayer so that they would actually have a different meaning uh, altogether, a more general meaning. So we see then that in, in these types of passages, Paul uh, does not merely mention the concepts in passing, but he lays out the reasons why and the grounds for which he's giving thanksgiving and the things for which he's praying for them. Now, uh, let's go back to Colossians now and consider uh, those distinctions as we go along and how they apply to this letter here. And what we find out is this. Looking at ver chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 8 here, we have, of course, again, as we mentioned, the two related concepts, the giving of thanks and the petitionary prayer. Now, we want to look for the pattern of the explanation uh, what are they giving thanks for? What is he praying for? As it was in the other letters. And what we find out is something interesting. He doesn't tell us here in immediately what it is that he prays for. He only begins to mention for what it is that he gives thanks. There in the beginning of verse 5a, well in verse 4 and 5 really, faith in Christ Jesus, love which you have to all the saints, and the, on account of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. And grammatically that is the primary reason of thanksgiving, on account of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Where does the prayer go? Well, he goes on to something else, it's not here. But skip down to verse 9 and look at what happens. For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. What we have here is the completion of what he began in verse 3 and 4, where he began to talk about the thanksgiving and the prayer, and we have an exact parallel. Verse 9, we do not cease to pray for you. Verse 3, praying always for you. Verse 9, since the day we heard it, Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have to all the saints. Then, uh, in verses, rest of 9, 10, and 11, we get 
what he prayed for, which was absent in verse 4, in verse 3. And, look at this, giving thanks unto the Father, verse 12. Verse 3, we give thanks. What does he give thanks for in verse 12? Which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Or, more literally, who makes us sufficient unto the portion of the portion, which is the inheritance of the saints in light. Go back to verse 5. What is he giving thanks for? On account of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. What is the hope laid up for you in heaven? It's the inheritance of the saints in light. So we have a parallel here. Now, why doesn't he do it in verses 5 and 8? Why do we have to wait till verses 9 through 11 to find out? What happens is he makes a digression. He gets interrupted in the flow of thought. Not at all unusual... Uh, for the writings of the Apostle. Lots of digressions here and there. Uh, this is a, a, a rather drastic one to some degree. But what happens is he gets taken up with a digression, but the digression is very, very important because it's in the digression that we have, in his getting off of the subject, if you will, that we have uh, this foundation that's laid for what's going to come in the rest of verse 1. So in a sense, it's getting off of the subject, but in another sense, it's woven together very beautifully. So then, Paul has said that he and Timothy are giving thanks to God and sending up petitionary prayer in behalf of the Colossians, because as the text says, we pray concerning you or about you. Prayer to God which requested certain things for the Colossians. And, of course, we find out what they requested there in verses 9, 10, and 11. But we should notice that right here in verse 3, he adds this little word, always. Praying always concerning you. What does it mean, praying always concerning you? You get some very strange interpretations of, of, uh, of when Paul puts a word like this in here. But it doesn't mean, of course, that Paul did nothing but pray for the Colossians, as if he was had empty, in prison and all he did was sit in the corner and pray for the Colossians day in, day out. And as soon as he'd wake, he'd pray for the Colossians. Not at all. Uh, I think the meaning is probably... It's, it's, it's well explained by some other passages. He repeats it again in a slightly different wording. He says, we do not cease to pray for you, verse 9. So it sounds like Paul's praying all the time. Uh, that's not what it means. If we go back to Philippians 1.3, if you remember from our uh, exposition of those verses, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Upon every remembrance of you. That's the key. Every time, it's the first idea. Every time that the Philippians came to mind, he thanked God. Same thing with the Colossians. I think it probably goes beyond that, however, as uh, the parallels which you can uh, uh, look up sometime uh, to Colossians 1.9. Romans 1.9, 1 Corinthians 1.4, and Ephesians 1.16, I think that the parallel is simply this. It is, the idea is that they were a regular part of the apostles' prayers. As often as he prayed, 
you might put it that way. As often as he prayed, he prayed for the Colossians and for the Philippians and for the other churches. He, they were a regular part of his prayers, not a one-time deal. Not, uh, not they heard about their faith, they thanked God, and whoop, that was it. No, uh, it was, it was, it was a, it was a, a regular part of his, of his prayers, a, a repetitive thing. Whenever we pray, we make mention of you before God. Now let me uh, pause from the exposition with just a brief application. Just, as we talked about last week, just as we must give thanks to God as a part of our worship of Him, so ought we to pray for the brethren. God wants us to ask Him to bless our brethren, to bless His people. God delights in such prayer. And also, it is the acting of the spirit of true Christianity. We know that Christ sums up the whole law in two things. Love to God and love to the brethren. And in prayer, uh, as love to God is expressed in thanksgiving, so our love to the brethren is expressed in petitions, in their behalf. Do you see how that works? We've got, we've got love to God and love to the brethren, and so when we pray, love to God is expressed in thanksgiving and praise, and love to the brethren is expressed in petition in their behalf. And please understand that I am not talking about this as some sort of rote duty with some sort of list that we rattle off, you know, as, as small children are sometimes want to do. Oh, God, bless mommy, bless daddy, bless doggy, bless everyone, you know, and not that at all. Uh, oh, and of course, there are more sophisticated adult versions of those same rote prayers, uh, which I won't go into. But we know that that is not that is not real prayer. Um, that's never been real prayer. Uh, true Christian character expresses itself in sincere prayer. Love to God in thanksgiving, love to the brethren in petition. There has to be that sincerity of heart behind it, or it's just honoring God with your lips while your heart is far from Him, isn't it? Now, going on, Paul tells us, when it was that they commenced this thanksgiving and, of course, the petitionary prayer. And that is in verse 4. And in doing so, he begins to explain in part the cause or the subject matter of this thanksgiving. He writes, We give thanks to God, having heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and love to all the saints. And of course the sense here is easy enough to understand. You will remember that we talked at the beginning of how Paul did not found the church of the Colossians. He had never been to Colossae. He did not preach the gospel to the Colossians. It was the work of Epaphras who had, who had preached the gospel to them. So Paul had no knowledge of even the existence of the Colossian church until Epaphras came to Rome. And to his imprisonment in Rome, and told him of the Colossian church and of their situation. And so he says, uh, the idea then is that, of course, since they had never heard, he'd never heard of them, he wouldn't be thanking God for them. But upon hearing of their faith and love, and regularly since that time, 
he and Timothy had been giving thanks to God for them. And I think this interpretation is confirmed by the language in verse 9, talking about prayer, the petition rather than the thanksgiving. He says, for this cause also, since the day we heard it, since the day we heard it, we do not cease to pray for you. So uh, the simple idea here is uh, then that the thanksgiving, their thanksgiving and their petition began the very day that they heard about these Colossians and continued right up to the present time of the Apostles' letter writing. And of course we've said that he, he, he heard about these things from Epaphras, and we'll talk about that as we get to those verses in 7 and 8. Now the, the other thing is, it not only tells us when they began to thank God and pray for the Colossians, it tells us something of why. The beginnings of the grounds of the thanksgiving. And I will say, as I mentioned before, the full grounds, the main grounds of the thanksgiving is in verse 5, on account of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. But of course, this is important, verse 4, leading up to that. And 5 is based upon verse 4, because unless you have people who have true faith and sincere love for the brethren, there is no hope of anything laid up for them in heaven. Now, about these, uh, this description of them and this ground of, of thanksgiving, uh, we would do well to inquire something of what it means. We know that faith in Christ Jesus would refer, of course, to a saving belief in the gospel. Now, Paul and Epaphras couldn't pry into the hearts of the Colossians, could they? Uh, or Timothy or anyone else couldn't look in there and say, mm, that one, he's, uh, he's believing. That, yep, that one too, that one. Couldn't do that. Uh, instead, of course, all that they have, all that we have, is the profession of saving belief in the gospel. But it is, of course, a profession which was credible. Epaphras had preached to them the true gospel. And they had received it as true, they had professed faith in it, and they had brought forth the necessary evidence that their profession was true. And so Paul could conclude, though he did not know the secret of their hearts, that they had saving faith in Christ Jesus. They had believed the gospel. Secondly, of course, he refers to hearing of their love to all the saints. Now again, this does not primarily refer to the affection of their hearts. Uh, but to the demonstration of love in the service and relief and comfort of the saints. We've talked about this many times. They had so behaved towards one another and towards the rest of the people of God that one could and should undoubtedly conclude that they were a people who had Christian love towards one another. And this was a, a, not only, notice, a love that wasn't demonstrated merely in the Colossian church, towards one another. It was a love toward all the saints. Wherever they found the Spirit of Christ in a man or a woman, to that person would they pour themselves out in service and relief. Just as we remember hearing of Gaius in, in the Third John, who demonstrated his love by receiving those messengers who'd come out. That that was a big thing. Uh, the, the receiving of the brethren demonstrated that love. I think we also want to observe not only the, 
the meaning of those two things, which is relatively straightforward, but the importance of their conjunction together. The, Paul doesn't merely rejoice because he heard of their faith, but because he heard of their faith in Christ and love to all the saints. Why? Why does he mention the two of them together? And, and why does he mention only the two of them? Why doesn't he throw in some of the other Christian graces as well? Well, in the scriptures, and I hinted at this before, in the scriptures, faith and love are given as the integral, vital Christian graces, manifestations of the works of the Spirit, and evidences of salvation. They correspond to the two tables of the law. They correspond to the summary of the law, as we mentioned before. Uh, that, that, that faith in Christ corresponds to that first table of the law, believing God. And love for the brethren corresponds to that second table of the law, love to the saints, directed towards men. And these things are inseparably joined together, so that if you claim one and the other is not present, then your claim to either is false. Consider, if you will, uh, the obvious passages uh, James chapter 2, verse 14 through 20. He says, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man says he has faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you do not give them those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. A man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well, the devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Here, classic example of exactly what we are talking about. The claim to faith is meaningless if there is not that love to the brethren which demonstrates itself in practical acts of service, comfort, and relief of need. Also, of course, on a more theological grounding, 1 John, uh, the letter of the love to the brethren, 1 John chapter 2, verse 10, He that loves his brother, he that says he's in the light and hates his brother, I'm sorry, verse 9, he that says... He is in the light and hates his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loves his brother abides in the light. He that hates his brother is in darkness and his eyes are blinded. Then chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 10. In this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loves not his brother. Verse 12, not as Cain, or this is the message we had from the beginning, love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. We know we've passed from death to life, verse 14, because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer. Because God laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our life for the brethren. And here, back to the James idea, verse 17. Whoso hath this world's good and sees his brother has need, and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how does the love of God dwell in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So here we have a, a kind of a twofold thing. Not only do we have John affirming uh, that you must, that love to the brethren is one of the essential signs of a true profession of faith, 
We have him telling us that it's not good enough to say that you love the brethren. Or to feel like you love the brethren. Or to think that you love the brethren. But just like the James example, if you relieve the brother in need, if you don't do that and shut up the bowels of compassion, how, how, it's, as, it's, as if, it's as if true Christian love wants to go out and you have to shut up the bowels of compassion. How does the love of God dwell in him? It doesn't. But John gets both things in too. Because if we go over to chapter, uh, chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 2, he doesn't just talk about love to the brethren in this book. He says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Verse 14 and 15. We have seen and testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. And chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Talking about how God has witnessed about Christ. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he's testified of his Son. He that believes on the Son of God has the witness in himself. He that believes not God has made him a liar, because he believes not the record that God gave of his Son. So we see two things, again, John and James both. Uh, both angles. If you claim faith, but you don't have love, your claim to faith is invalid. But, it's not enough to just go around doing acts of practical service to the brethren if you are a heretic. If you reject the testimony of God about Christ and do not receive Him as the Son of God and, and, of, and the Savior of the world and of all the things that God testified of Him because you call God a liar. So both things join together as the vital... Uh, uh, integral summary of what it is to have the true salvation. And now finally, uh, having said something of, uh, of what those things are, we go back to their, con to their context in our exposition. Uh, remember that we said that by mentioning their hearing of these things as the commencement of their thanksgiving, it points to the fact that the faith and love of the Colossians was also the subject of their thanksgiving. They thanked God for the Colossians' faith in Christ and love to the saints. Now, there are a couple of important points here. Uh, first of all, note that they did not, upon hearing that the Colossians had faith in Christ and love to the saints, praise the Colossians. They give thanks to God. They give thanks to God because the faith and love of the Colossians is the work of God. Now this is very interesting because the language that is used is such that you would think that it was the work of the Colossians. He speaks of their faith in Christ, their love to all the saints that they demonstrated by their practical acts of service. But he completely bypasses that and turns directly and says, we give thanks to God. Now, of course... Um, God is the author of those graces. It was His work for His own glory. And there is in that a indirect or perhaps a direct testimony against Arminianism, against any concept of the merit of works and all of those things. But an important, important fact. 
And you'll see that all throughout all of these places in the apostles, that, in, in the epistles of the apostles. Very, very rarely is, is, are, are, are people directly praised. It is always, we heard you were doing this wonderful thing and we thanked God. That's always how it is. Only those couple of, uh, of examples that we pointed out last week are some of the exceptions and we talked about why they're put that way. The second point is this, it's just as important what they do not say as what they say. Notice he doesn't say, we give thanks to God because you united to the church. No, he doesn't say, we give thanks to God because you were baptized. No, he doesn't say that at all. He doesn't say, we give thanks to God because you came forward to receive the administration of the Lord's Supper. No, he says, we give thanks to God because we heard evidence that you have received the salvation of God. The Colossians were united to Christ by their saving faith and were walking according to his commandments. And that, that was the grounds of their thanksgiving. Now, of course, the, the applications are somewhat obvious and I won't belabor them, the importance of the, the union of faith and love for a, a credible, valid profession of faith and the importance of examining ourselves in that respect. And also, uh, supplemental to that, just as we said that the Apostle uh, uh, prayed for the brethren as well as gave thanks, it's important to notice that uh, we, too, ought to be filled with thanksgiving when we hear of those uh, that have faith in Christ and love to all the saints. Next week then, we will go on. I'd hoped to uh, to go on to this today and to complete the thought, but as I uh, got into it, I saw that that would uh, extend us, I think, beyond what we uh, would like to hear in one sitting. So uh, next week, we will pick up with verse 5, which, which is kind of a transitional verse. Uh, it, on the one hand, gives us the grounds, the full grounds, and, 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 and the basic fundamental grounds on which they were giving thanks, on account of the hope that is laid up in heaven. That was the principal thing, and the faith and, and the love to the saints proved that they were to be the, 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 it was valid to have, that they would be the recipients of that hope. So it answers back to the first part of this section, but then it also is the, is the basis for the digression that he makes. Because it's this hope laid up in heaven, which they heard before in the gospel. And it's their hearing of the gospel at the very beginning that he wants to emphasize here and talk about through uh, 5, 6, 7, 4 verses there, 5 through 8. So we will pick up with that uh, next week then, Lord willing. Thank mm-hmm. you.